Greetings, everybody. Irv Lindsay here. How you doing? Welcome to the Irv TV Queen City Podcast. Um, two days before her scheduled wedding, a bride-to-be is murdered in cold blood in Covington, Kentucky at the in the middle of the Great Depression in 1936. This case went on to capture national headlines. Was it a burglary gone bad? Or did someone simply want the bride to be dead? Uh, we're going to talk about this case today. Uh, this is, again, this is one of the cases covered in J.T. Townsend's Queen City Gothic. Uh, and so I'm going to recommend everybody go out and grab you a copy of this book, um, Queen City Gothic. You can get the ebook on Amazon, which is, which is what I did. Uh, but really, this is a book you're going to want on your bookshelf if you're into Cincinnati history. And if you're into true crimes especially, this is a fantastic book. And J.T. Townsend will be coming out, and I have it on uh, on his word online in one of the Facebook groups, that uh, his new book about the Brick of Murders case is going to drop any day now. So be looking for that. All right, guys. So um, Covington... Kentucky, 1936. Um, 1936, the country was getting ready for World War I, and uh, the Olympics had just happened. That kind of sets the, the social stage. But one of the other things that was going on in the United States at this time that really defined an entire generation of people was the Great Depression. And a lot of people across the country there, uh, did not have access to jobs or money or the resources that it took to have a life that we consider normal. A lot of people did not drive cars. They walked or they rode bikes if you were lucky to have a bike. Um, and um, to live in a home, to own a home, to drive a car during the Great Depression was something that few people were able to do. Um, now... You guys may, may those of you who are from Cincinnati, you're aware that south of the river here in the Cincinnati area was referred to as Sin City long before Vegas existed. The Covington Newport in particular, Newport, was referred to as Sin City. There was a lot of illegal gambling, gambling establishments. There was a, a huge mob presence there. And if, if something was illegal, especially alcohol, you could find it over across the river. It was to be found. And uh, as a result of this, there was a lot of job opportunities um, because of all of the nightclubs and casinos. There's a lot of money floating around the area. So October 2nd, 1936, the early morning hours, Oakland Avenue and Covington, every street in this section of Covington is kind of the same. Uh, every street had a uh, an alley that went from the middle of a block that just went down through the middle of the houses to the next street. Sometimes it went all the way through across the street, you know, on both sides of the street. Sometimes it was just on one side of the street. That's the case on Oakland Avenue at 2104 in Covington, uh, where our story takes place. Um, so 2104 Oakland Avenue, uh, it's just an average looking brick house with a brick porch on it and a little fence out front. 
and the street, there are pictures in Queen City Gothic of what the street looks like. And honestly, the pictures back then don't look much different than the pictures today that I've found. Um, the, um, the house itself is not on the corner, but it's right next to the house that's on the corner. And so, um, it's kind of at that little bit of a crossroads there, and we'll come back to its specific location in a moment. Now, um, the, the, the three sisters were coming home that night. Um, Frances Marie Brady was in a relationship with John J. O'Donnell, and they had been dating for about 10 years. They'd never gotten married. They were very comfortable um, in, their, in their not being married. Um, the sisters were all about the same age. Uh, Frances was the youngest. She was born in 1899. She was age 37 on the night of our story. And her, she had, uh, uh, Margaret was, um, one of her sisters was 38. And Ella, another sister was born in 1897, who was 39. According to the 1930 census, which was a, which is a fantastic resource, might I add, um, according to the census, um, her sister Ella was a bookkeeper, just like Frances was a secretary or stenographer, as they were called back then. And it looked to me like they worked at the same place. They worked for the same employer. So they worked together and uh, they lived together. These sisters were very close. None of them were married, which in that, in that day and time to have three sisters to all reach their late thirties and not be married, I think was, was kind of an odd thing. Socially, most, most women would get married back in that day. Um, I know I haven't come across any women in my family history from that era of time that weren't married by the age of 25. Um, so, uh, they're walking home. They get home late. All right. They get home very late because this on this night they have attended Francis's bridal shower, and uh, they they had a great time that night. They were in good spirits, so you can imagine them parking their car in that alley, and then walking back towards their house, which was which was near the corner of of the streets, the intersection, and. Um, once again, there's, there's, there's no room for driveways on this street. It's all sidewalk. And um, they get to the door, and Margaret, um, who is the uh, middle sister, Margaret gets out her keys and tries to unlock the door. Now, I can imagine the sisters talking. They're, they're in good spirits. I, you know, there's no mention of any type of noise they're making, but you have three women coming home, you know, it's, it's quiet. It's also a full moon. All reports of this say that this was the night of a full moon. So it was very easy to see that night. It was clear and bright. It was a very bright night because of the full moon. Um, so the middle sister, um, Margaret, is trying to unlock the front door. And um, the action of locking the front door is going to make noise, but um, also the sisters were probably, um, you know, talking and having a good time. And so Margaret puts her key in the door, cannot, no matter what she does, cannot get the lock to turn. 
And and so uh, Frances, who um, her friends and family call her Fanny. I guess that was a nickname for Frances. Anyway, Frances says, hey, um, let me try it. The two sisters switch sides. Margaret goes to stand um, where Frances was, and Frances gets the keys and puts it in the lock. Frances now goes to unlock the door and does it with no effort at all. It just slides and unlocks. No problem. And um, that's weird. So she takes the key out, hands it back to her sister. She opens the door, and she opens it at arm length like this. So she would watch, she walked into the house far enough to flip on the light. And what happens next is that she makes a noise. She goes, oh. And her sisters say it sounded to them less like she was startled, but more like she recognized something. Like something was familiar, either a person or a thing. And then there is a gunshot. And Frances falls back. She stumbles backwards, falls down the stairs into the front yard. And um, the sisters who are on either side of her are scared to death. They see the gunshot. They swear it came from inside either the living room or the front hallway. Guys, I haven't been inside the house. I could find no pictures of what the inside of this home at uh, 2104 Oakland Avenue looks like. <clears throat> but she falls back onto the front um, the front lawn and the sisters flee in terror. And um, that is that is the story of what happened. All right, friends, I want to pause for just a moment before we go on to our next segment to mention my YouTube channel, Irv TV. At Irv TV, we explore Cincinnati history. And each week we learn about something new and we do it together. Sometimes we explore abandoned buildings, find lost cemeteries, or learn about important people in Cincinnati history. Cincinnati has such a rich and unique past. And on Irv TV, we explore it together. So go check it out if you haven't already. YouTube.com slash Irv TV. And I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Irv TV. Now, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning when they got home. And um, the next door neighbor, his name is Hugo Walks. Walks, W-A-C-H-S. Let's talk about... Hugo Walks, I'm going to call him Walks. It could have been Wax, I guess. Um, According to the 1930 census, he lives next door at 2102 Oakland Avenue. He's a local salesman. I don't know what he sold, but he's a salesman. Um, He also hears the gunshot, and he comes outside to see what the heck is going on. Um, uh, Now... Another character in our story is another member of the neighborhood, and his name is um, Chester Lathrop. Could be Lathrop. Once again, me having trouble figuring out how to pronounce something. This would not be an Irv TV production if I knew how to pronounce everything. Uh, Mr. Lathrop 
Lathrop was a pharmacist. Now he lived down at 2109 Oakland Avenue, and that is right next to the alley where the sisters parked their car. Um, he was walking his dog. Who walks their dog at one o'clock in the morning? I mean, seriously. Um, but he's out walking his dog. So these guys must have been night owls because all these people were awake and heard a gunshot. Um, I guess they could have been woken up by the gunshot. But anyway, so he hears the gunshot. He runs towards the Brady house. And um, he is the one that drives her body to St. Elizabeth's in a police car where she's pronounced dead on arrival. Now, there's a phrase that confuses me in researching this, and I've done a lot of my own research. I've pulled up newspaper articles, and I've read, I've researched outside of the Queen City Gothic book. And they keep using this phrase, behind the block, to the rear of the block. I don't know what that means. I have no personal reference to a 21st century usage of this. I've never heard it. When I, when I say talk about behind the block or to the rear of the block or something like that, I don't know what that means. <clears throat> um, there's a very important point here. And that point is that um, after the murders, they found no fingerprints, no footprints. They found no evidence at the scene at all. Chester Lathrop, and Mr. Wax that lives next door, they carry Francis body over to the Wax home. So the, the crime scene has already been uh, uh, tainted, so to speak, once they remove the body. Um, the sad part of this is she was supposed to be married the next Wednesday and um, instead her funeral was held on Tuesday in the very church where she was supposed to have been married. Uh, John J. O'Donnell, 46-year-old assistant city passenger agent, according to uh, Queen City Gothic, he worked for the Louisville and Nashville Railroad. Um, he was an immediate suspect. However, Mrs. Watts called him at his home at 1 a.m. and woke him up and told him about the accident. Back then, that was, that was an alibi. So he was immediately cleared because Mrs. Walks was able to say, hey, I called him at his house and he answered the phone. Um, that was good enough for the police. Um, there's not a whole lot more to say about him, to be honest. Um, they could not find any love triangles. They couldn't find anybody that didn't like these people. Um, neither of them had dated anybody else to speak of for years and years. They had been going together for a decade. Um, there were no rivals. There was no, everybody loved them. They couldn't find enemies of any type anywhere, no matter what they did. There was no signs of forced entry. Uh, nothing was taken. They did find drawers open. They found where somebody looked like somebody was going through things, but nothing had been taken. On Monday, October 5th, uh, I'm sorry, I said Tuesday. On Monday, October 5th, she was laid to rest. There was an estimated crowd of 800 people in attendance uh, with reports of hundreds more outside that couldn't get in. Um, it was just... This was a near-perfect crime, and they could not figure out what happened.
Uh, Margaret told police it felt to her as if someone was um, inside holding the knob. So let's go back to a couple of points about this uh, about this this crime. If you'll recall, back during this period of time, the locks on doors was a skeleton key. And it was a very simple locking mechanism that was quickly abandoned once better technologies came along. But on this particular type of, there were several types of skeleton locks, but on the one they had, there was a knob on the inside that was a locking where you could lock it from inside. If you held that knob, it was not possible to turn it from the outside because the knob was attached to the same mechanism that the key was inserted into, right? And so um, Margaret had said it felt as if someone was holding the knob. And later, she would test that theory, and indeed it was true. If someone held the knob outside, you could not unlock the door. I'm sorry, if someone held the knob inside, you could not unlock the door outside. Um, so the Kentucky Times Star, the Kentucky Post, the Cincinnati Inquirer all ran this story and the Kentucky Post headlined this story every day for a week. It was widely reported. Um, now, they did hold a, um, I've never heard of this before, but uh, they held a jury-style inquest. One of the, uh, a lot of details came out and the newspapers went crazy with all the details. Uh, drawers in the living room buffet were pulled open, but nothing inside had been disturbed. Drawers were open in two upstairs bedrooms, but nothing was taken. Guys, it sounds to me like somebody knew the house. They didn't have to ransack the house. They knew where things were at, and they were selectively going through and looking for objects of value in places they knew they should be located. Uh, that's just, to me, to my, that's what it sounds like to me personally. The window over the porch and a bedroom window were open about a foot, but that was on the second floor. There was no sign of any forced entry, and this is would become a key point in the investigation later and a key point in J.T. Townsend's um, own um, theory of what happened was that two front door keys were missing. The sisters swear the doors to the house were locked. Since there was no forced entry, it would have had to been somebody that had a key. One of those keys had only come up missing in the two months previous to the crime. Uh, the sisters were very insistent that all the doors were locked. So the fact that there was no forced entry meant whoever got in did so with a key. And probably, I'm assuming, this is me talking, this is Irv's, or Irv's opinion, this would have had to have known the Brady sisters. Uh, now, on the uh, on the day of the the we'll call it the uh, inquest on Wednesday, where they get everybody together, a witness came forward that saw a man and a woman fleeing the murder scene. And um, the newspapers say that he lived behind the Brady home, to the rear of the block. There's this phrase again. Um, <clears throat> I've done my own research, my friends. The name, man's name was Frank Armstrong. According to the 1930 census, Mr. Armstrong lived at 512 East 21st Street. Now, he was a railroad clerk, um, and 
512 East 21st Street is not behind the Brady home. It is not to the rear of the Brady home. So if the Brady house is facing this way, let's face the camera. If the Brady house is facing this way, you go out the Brady home, out the front door, out to the sidewalk. You're going to turn right. You're going to go down to the intersection of East 21st Street and um, Oakland Avenue. Once you get to East 21st Street, you can turn left. You're going to go down about a half a block, and that is where... Frank Armstrong lived, according to the 1930 census, at 512 East 21st Street. Once again, he claimed to see a man and a woman fleeing the scene. If he was at his home and he was looking back towards the intersection from where he lived, you cannot see the Brady home, and you certainly would never see the back door of the Brady home from that vantage point. However, if he did see a man and a woman running along the street at 1 a.m. in the vicinity of the crime, that probably is significant. However, be, be, be aware if you're researching this crime that he did not live behind the Brady's. Unless in that four-year period of time, he sold his house and bought a new house. Let's talk quickly about the ballistics. Now, I do not know the exact layout of this house. I've seen neither map of the house, nor have I seen a, a pictures of the inside. So the front door, you walk in the front door. It swings open like this. And you would reach out your right hand and turn on the switch. There's a hallway and there's stairs. The stairs go down. I'm assuming the stairs are on the left side as you're coming in. Or to your left. They're coming down. To a point where a person could run down from the second floor and go out the back door. And that's, that's the description. That's as you read through this. That's what I, I come to understand. Because the ballistics reports say or the coroner's report, I'm sorry, said that the bullet went in about four inches beneath her shoulder and went straight through and hit her in the heart, then went to the right and went, went um, into her liver. <clears throat> and so whoever shot her, shot her from above. So they were on the stairs or the landing above. They shot her. So it's almost as if they were waiting and then they escaped. Um, so a man by the name of Harold Van Venison, this is important, comes along on, on December 1st of that year. Uh, he was a condemned man. He had uh, raped and assaulted a white woman some years before. Um, so he's on death row and he's looking for a way off death row. That's the assumption. He comes forward with this very believable story about two accomplices, two associates of his that um, he's worked with in the past that did this crime. He tells the story of how the how they walked in on the burglary and how they shot her and and they told him the story later and he says, hey, I wasn't involved. I was in Springfield, Ohio and I was doing a concert because this man was a well-known radio singer. Um, and so I'm not going to go into the details. If you want to read the details of this part of the story, pick up Queen City Gothic and read it. Um, the name of the two men that he points a finger at Bradshaw and Haynes are the name of the men. Uh, Haynes, I think, ended up dying before they could bring him to trial. So the last remaining individual that Venison says did this, Willie Bradshaw, his trial started on March 16th, 1938, and everything hinged on Van Venison and his testimony. 
a ballistics report is brought forward. They find a 38 uh, caliber weapon uh, that is in Bradshaw's possession. They fire a test bullet. They match the test bullet from the gun with the bullet they pulled from Francis Marie Brady's body. During the course of the trial, which is <coughs> very detailed, and I'm not going to give um, all those details. Read about it in Queen City Gothic. Uh, a very reliable witness comes forth and says, hey, not only was Van Venison in town, he wasn't singing in Springfield. Not only was he in town, but he was staying at my house and he had that gun in his possession. Uh, yeah, Venison's whole story collapsed. Nobody believed him. And because of the fact that his testimony was the sole testimony responsible for everything that happened, this jury of six men and six women, all white, convened, uh, uh, went into weigh the evidence, and they were gone for 52 minutes, folks. When this all-white jury came back in a murder case of a black man accused of murdering a white woman, what verdict do you think they gave? Not guilty. Seriously. Uh, it is amazing considering the time and the social circumstances in which this case happened. Uh, Bradshaw was completely exonerated on all counts. Harold Venison, by the way... If you know anything about Kentucky history, or if you know, or if you're interested in criminal history, you will know Harold Venison was the last man to be hanged in the state of Kentucky on June 3rd, 1938. That's right. So uh, he eventually got what was coming to him. Did he commit the murder or not? I don't know. So here's my take on what probably happened. There were probably two people in the house that night. Was it a man and a woman, as Frank Armstrong said he saw running down the street? I don't know. So someone was downstairs, someone was upstairs. One person was going through that dining room bureau, somebody was upstairs going through drawers. The person on the first floor probably heard the commotion up as the sisters came up the front walk. And as she's, she's trying to get the attention of the, guy, uh, the, the person upstairs... I'm assuming it's a she. It could be the other way around. It could be two, two males. Uh, the, the person is downstairs holding that lock, trying to keep the sisters from coming in. As the person upstairs realizes they're coming home, he's on the way out. He's halfway down. He is part the way down the stairs when the first sister pulls her key out. At this point, whoever's holding the lock bolts for the back door. The person upstairs is all coming down the stairs, but they have their gun drawn, and they already have the gun pointed at the front door. And when the door swings open, and Frances Marie Brady looks in and sees somebody coming down or on her stairs to the point to where she could see them, oh, she says. She sees somebody, bam, there's a gunshot from above. Perhaps she saw the first person who hadn't made it out of the house yet. It, I don't know. Uh, but it's apparent to me there were two people, probably, and uh, nothing was stolen because they weren't there long enough to steal anything. This was a burglary gone bad. That's the way I see it. Was it a man and a woman? I don't know. Guys, thanks for watching. I appreciate it. This has been the Irv TV Queen City Podcast. We come to you every first and third Monday with a new podcast of either something having to do with Cincinnati history. Anything is open game. 
Uh, so guys, I will see you in the next video.